Good morning. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 8, the 8th chapter of John, and we will continue our study through the Gospel of John. I'll remind you where we're at in our study. Um, If you want a very simplified outline of John's Gospel, you have the first 12 chapters comprise Jesus' public ministry, his teaching publicly in the land of Israel over three or four years, depending on whether or not the unnamed Feast of the Jews in John 5 is a Passover. And then from 13 to 17, you have Jesus' private ministry, where he's ministering only to the 12. And that takes place in the upper room. It's the night before his crucifixion. And that lasts over about three or four hours, culminating with his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then in chapters 18 to 21, you have his death, burial, resurrection, his passion. Um, that takes place over three or four weeks with the post-resurrection appearances. So you have his public ministry, 1 to 12, private ministry, 13 to 17, and then his passion, 18 to 21, roughly. And in the first section that we're in, um, what we have is the beginnings of belief, but then starting in chapter 5, we see the rise of the opposition, In chapter 5, where Jesus tells the Jews in Jerusalem, his father works and he works, and they're trying to kill him. In 6, he feeds the multitude, and even though it begins well, by the end of 6, everyone's leaving him, even his disciples. In 7, he goes up to the Feast of Booths, and he speaks, and we see there's confusion, there's division, but by the end of 8, chapter 8, this last great day of the feast, the, the large response to Jesus will consolidate in rejection anger, animosity, they will seek to kill him. Look, look to the end of chapter 8, where Jesus most clearly unveils his identity and he most clearly unveils the identity of the Jews in Jerusalem. Start saying eight forty-eight. the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me, yet I do not seek my own glory, but the one who seeks it. There is one who seeks it, and he is your judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my words, he will not see death. It goes back and forth. He tells them their father is Satan. And then, verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. That's how chapter 8 ends. That's how the crowd, by and large, resolves itself. A crowd that's divided, some saying he's a good man, others saying, no, he's leading the people astray. Some people saying he's the Messiah, some saying he's the prophet. By and large, the totality will try to kill him at the end of this chapter. That's where we're at as Israel's response. When we were told this in the opening chapter, he came to his own, his own people did not receive him. We're, We're seeing that happen here. And yet Jesus is preaching the gospel, speaking truth to those who have ears to hear, to the remnant. So let's read John 8, 21 to 30. That's the context of where we're at. As he speaks more and more clearly. And let's see what the Lord has for us in this word. We're looking at our second part of this study, but we'll read verses 21 to 30. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me. and You will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. 
You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he said these things, many believed in him. Lord God, what a great Savior we have, fearless and unafraid, who always does what is pleasing to you. Lord, we pray that you would give us the faith to see that he is the one promised, that we would not die in our sins, but that we might come to faith in the Son of God. For those of us with faith, Lord, I pray that you would increase it, strengthen it, that we might more better see, understand, and love our Savior. Guard us from the error of many of these Jews who scoff and mocked in unbelief and perished in their sins. In Jesus' name, amen. So over this flow of this passage, what unites these two chunks while we're looking at them as a part one and part two is Jesus' declaration, I am he. We looked at that first last week. We'll look at that again this week. In the first half, he delivers three times the news, the warning, you will die in your sins. You will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. There's only one way to avoid dying in your sins, and it's coming to believe that Jesus is he, whatever that means. We looked at that last week. We'll look at it again this week. That same phrase is tied up in our passage the second half this morning. Um, we look at verse 28. Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. That's what unifies these together. That's why we're looking at this as a part one and a part two. And so we're going to look at this in two points, Jesus' judgment and vindication, point one, verses 26 to 27. Jesus declares his Father's word to the world. Jesus declares his Father's word to the world. And we remember from last week that he gives that one exception clause. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So the Jews picking up on the fact, not that they will die in their sins, the part that should be bothering them, the part that should have their attention. Their own consciences should be agreeing, yes, I'm in trouble. No, no, they pick up on just, just who do you think you are? You apparently think you're somebody important. Who are you? And Jesus doesn't really get sidetracked by that at this moment. At the end of the chapter, he will speak plainly without any ambiguity. They will understand and they will seek to kill him. Here, he, he repeats or just says, I, who I've been telling you from the beginning, but then he gets back to talking about them. And so point one here, we have a word of judgment. Judgment. I have much to say about you and much to judge. Much to say about them and much to judge. And this is odd because just previously he said he, he doesn't judge anyone. If you look back a little further in chapter 8, you see him say, um, 
Verse 15, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. But when we looked at that, we we understood what he's saying is, I don't judge like you, because he will be judging, even in the next verse, verse 16. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. Here he says plainly, I have much to say and much to judge. Part of this is the, the tension caught up in the fact that Jesus has not fundamentally come to judge. Turn, turn to John 3. Yet, inescapably, as he comes as light, light cannot help but expose darkness. And so Jesus' light exposes and in some senses cauterizes and intensifies the darkness of those who hate God around him. It's, it's inescapable. So in John three seventeen. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Jesus has not fundamentally come on a mission of condemnation, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but by consequence, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. So by the virtue of coming and light coming into the world, the men who it's revealed, hate the light, love the darkness, shun the light. Their guilt intensifies. Their condemnation grows. This is the inescapable nature of what Jesus is doing. I have much to say about you and much to judge. In fact, look back to the beginning of chapter seven. This is tied up with his statement, his shining of light and exposing the nature of the world. John 7, 7 as he's considering going up to the Feast of Booths and his brothers are urging him. He says to them, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. And so we saw last week, we'll see again this week, the very nature of proclaiming the gospel necessitates, presupposes, involves a message of condemnation. You need saving. And Jesus testifies about the world that his works are evil. And these Jews in Jerusalem, these very religious people in the temple celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles are so associated with the world, so in step with the world that he's, his statements condemn them. He testifies, your blank here is he testifies about the world that its works are evil. And so in keeping with that, he has much to say about them and much to judge. Jesus makes this plain in, in, in his later statements, specifically in John 17. You're either of this world or of God. The world either knows you as its own or the world doesn't know you as its own. And so when he speaks about the world, he's speaking about the world fundamentally as the world in opposition to God, the world in conflict with its creator, the world as a moral sphere, not simply as a spacious sphere, a big place, but a dark place. That's, that's the idea. He testifies about the world that his works are evil. And so therefore, in so much as he's doing that, he has much to say about them and much to judge. Point two, the good news announces universal condemnation. And this is the trick. We have, we have a good news. Gospel means good news. But the good news is about the cure for the disease. The good news is about the deliverance from certain judgment and death. And so the offense of the gospel is frequently its, its announcement of judgment. The good news is that God would be gracious, but the bad news is you and I desperately need grace. The good news is there's forgiveness. The bad news is you need forgiveness. Now, we understand that, but this is precisely the tension that's in place. So Jesus' announcements of judgment are not ends in and of themselves. Rather, they are precursors to his invitations. When he comes a second time, he comes to judge. He comes to judge and to deliver his own. Here, he's coming to deliver to save, but it's inescapable that even in doing that, he announces judgment. That's the idea. 
I have much to say about you and much to judge. And as we get to the end of John chapter 8, he's going to have some really plain and hard things to say. You are of your father, the devil. If I said I did not know God, I'd be a liar like you. Jesus has some really blunt things to say to these very religious people. But rather than going all in right here and right now, he makes this, this next statement to balance it off. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that what I have heard from him. So we go from judgment to mission. And even though Jesus has much he could say, the conflict here to some degree has been joined. These people are belligerents. Who do you think you are? Are you going to kill himself? Is that what he's planning to do? And again, this belligerence and this conflict will only escalate throughout the chapter. Jesus is constrained by his mission. He who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. So he has plenty to say and plenty to judge about them. But he's not going to stop what he's doing and just unload on them directly. He is always constrained by his father's mission. And that is what is directing his speech. So what he's saying is, I have a lot I could say about you. And he is going to say a fair bit of things about them. But only in so much as it's his father's will, his father's mission, his father's purpose. He who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. So three things from this. One, Jesus speaks as directed by his father. Jesus speaks as directed by his father. I hope you get this in John's gospel so far. Jesus' emphatic emphasis that he does nothing of his own initiative. He does nothing on his own authority. He does nothing, the Greek, literally from himself. Turn back to John 5. John 8's discussion, in many respects, develops, repeats, and amplifies the themes in John 5, the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem. And in John 5, and this is, this is the challenge Jesus has. He, he, he wants to make it plain and clear. He is equal with the Father. He is fully God, not lowercase g God. He is fully God, and yet he is not in conflict with the Father. He's not in competition with the Father. He is in lockstep with the Father. There is no daylight between them. The Father is pleased with them. The Father is not threatened by him. That's the balancing act of his teaching. He's, I am fully equal to the Father, but he's not putting himself up as a competing God. And so in 519, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. That's an amazing statement. There is nothing Jesus says or does that originates first and foremost in him. That's what he's saying. Literally, he does nothing of himself. Everything he does is in reflection of what he sees from his father. He says the same thing in 5.30. I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. All of his judgments are in response to what his father would do. And so he makes a similar statement here. I declare to the world what I have heard from him. So Jesus speaks as directed by his father lest we think him tearing into his enemies is him getting some satisfaction in, in pronouncing some judgment on those who have opposed him. Everything he's doing, including his judgment and his strong statements against his adversaries, are to be understood as at his father's direction and behest. Jesus speaks as directed by the father. But also notice, Jesus speaks from experience with his father. Even nestled in here is something that shows the exalted greatness of Christ. When we speak of what God has said, we speak of what we've read. We speak of what we've read with our eyes. 
Jesus speaks of what he's seen and what he's heard. These are the categories he uses. He who sent me is true. I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Elsewhere, he'll say what he's seen from the Father. This, this goes all the way back in the beginning of John's gospel to chapter 1, verse 18, where John declares, and, and this is how John frames Jesus, the only begotten, no one has ever, sorry, no one has ever seen God, 118. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And the, the verb there for to make known is the verb we get exegesis from exegetical preaching. You could say Jesus has translated. Jesus has communicated the Father. Jesus is the revelation that communicates the Father. And so, of course, then, everything Jesus says is revealing, communicating the Father. That's what he's saying here. So Jesus speaks as directed by his Father, but Jesus speaks from experience with his Father. So John 3, 31 to 32, he who comes from above is above all. He was of the earth, belongs to the earth, and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. So Jesus uniquely can reveal and communicate the Father. You and I can reveal and communicate God insofar as we speak his word to people. When we evangelize, let me tell you who God is. Jesus can use categories like, let me tell you what I've seen and heard. Because he is from heaven. That's continuing that theme that he said we looked at last week where he says, you're, you're from below, I'm from above. You're from this earth, I am not of this earth. He's come from heaven and he's uniquely qualified to speak. He speaks from experience. He speaks from experience with his father. Third, Jesus speaks as one from above to the world. We, we saw that last week in verse 23. Look at 823. You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. And when we looked at that last week, Jesus is fundamentally talking about being in a different sphere or category. They are earthlings, worldlings. They're part of this worldly sphere. Jesus is not simply an exalted man. He is of another order, of another place. That's the idea. And so this is, again, picking up in John's gospel, this theme of Jesus as the messenger from heaven, he was above all, he was from above, is above all. He comes, he was of, sorry, John 3, 31 to 32. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. So Jesus is then speaking and judging and constrained by his father. And the words he speaks are nothing but the words the father would have him to speak. And he is speaking as one from heaven, as the messenger, the revelation, the word of the father come to earth. That's, that's what he's saying. That's his mission. That was what constrains him. So to summarize, he has a lot to say. He will have some things to say. He will have judgment to bring on his enemies. But first and foremost, he is constrained by the will of his father to declare to the world what he's heard from him. And again, this is, this is developing Jesus' theme as the prophet like Moses. He's one who has a message to communicate. Now to all this, they profoundly misunderstand. Point C here, misunderstanding. So judgment, mission, now misunderstanding. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. And this is again a constant theme in John's gospel. Jesus, throughout his ministry, speaks, and he 
speaks at times, we know this from the Gospels, in veiled ways. When he says, he who has eyes to see or ears to hear, he's saying things for those who are alert and attentive to pick up on, to get, and, and the rest of it goes over the heads of his adversaries. And the reason for that is, as Jesus speaks more and more plainly, and they understand what he's saying, they want to kill him. They want to kill him. So, in one sense, then, this continues to demonstrate that Jesus has indeed been telling them this from the beginning. Just from the beginning, they've been misunderstanding. Remember when he goes into the temple and cleanses it, and they say to him, what sign do you do? By what authority? Where's your temple clearing permit? And he says to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And they're all bothered because this, this temple took 30 years to build. How can They didn't understand he was talking about the temple of his body. His disciples didn't even get it, but later they remembered and believed. This is continuing that theme. Jesus is speaking about his father. What we'll also see, your point too, is as he speaks more and more plainly, they become more and more hostile. As Jesus speaks more and more plainly, they become more and more hostile. And we started our study this morning looking at the end of chapter eight, when he speaks most plainly of all. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am and there's no confusion, there's no misunderstanding, they try to kill him. And so in Jesus' ministry, in one sense, he speaks more and more subtly at the beginning, and then as he moves closer to the cross, he speaks more and more plainly, more and more openly. There's no deception. He's always saying the same thing. The question is how clearly, how distinctly is he saying it? So he's able to tell the woman at the well in Sychar, I'm the Messiah. He can speak plainly to her, but to the crowds, he speaks oftentimes in parables. We're told the reason he spoke in parables is so that seeing they would not see and hearing they would not hear. He speaks in parables not to help them understand, but to confound. They misunderstand, which then brings Jesus to his next statement. Jesus' deity will be proven on the cross. Jesus' deity will be proven on the cross. Verses 28 through 30. So Jesus said to them, now get this, so when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. As He was saying these things, many believed in Him. Jesus' deity will be proven on the cross. So Jesus has just told them, last week we saw this, the only way to escape dying in your sins is to believe that Jesus is he. And I argued last week, and I'll argue again this week, that that is tantamount to saying he is God, the deity of Christ. Or to put it as plainly as I can, believing that Jesus is God coming to faith that Jesus is not just a good teacher, not just a prophet, but God is an essential piece of the gospel, necessary for salvation. Unless you believe that Jesus is God, you will die in your sins. And so, given that understanding, and I'll back that up some more this morning, then what he's saying is when, you, when he is lifted up, when he's crucified, then they will know that he is God. Jesus said to them, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. So, 
Jesus' deity will be proven on the cross. So first, Jesus speaks to them of his imminent crucifixion. If we turn back to chapter three, I think it becomes clear that this phrase, lifting up the Son of Man, is a clear reference to the cross. Jesus first uses this imagery when talking with Nicodemus. John three fourteen. We'll pick it up to pick it up in verse thirteen. No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Moses lifted up a bronze serpent on a pole, and those who looked with faith were healed. Jesus will be lifted up on a pole, on a cross. And those who look to him in faith will be forgiven. This is a reference to the crucifixion. Or turn a little later in John to 12. John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So, back in 8, referencing being lifted up is a reference to the crucifixion. It's a reference to what type of death he will die. So Jesus, let's put the pieces together. When you have lifted me up to crucify me, then you will know that I am... God or the Son of God, I, I believe is what he's saying, something like that. There's two subpoints here. First, notice the irony. The irony. Um, have you ever paused to think that the mark of our faith, if there's any symbol the Christian church globally uses as a cross, the mark of our faith is the mark of ignominy and shame. It's, it's an execution device, it's a torture tool for the lowest criminals, and yet we have one on our church. Some of you probably have pieces of jewelry with crosses, and it's because tied up in the cross is both the glory and the shame of Jesus. There's, there's irony here. He's gonna be lifted up, and he's gonna be lifted up in ignominy and in glory. The cross is what glorifies the Son. In John 17, turn over to John 17. This, this, this passage is tying together a number of themes. Jesus says in 17, one, the night before the crucifixion, when Jesus had spoken these words, he's lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Jump, jump down to verse five. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is glorified precisely by being shamed. He's glorified. His glory is revealed most clearly, most fully on the cross, even as he receives the sin and shame of our guilt, even as he is mocked and scourged and falsely condemned. The early church spoke with more great irony of Jesus reigning from the cross, even as the placard over his head is the king of the Jews. There's, there's great irony here. When you have lifted me up, which is another way you could speak of exaltation. You would lift somebody up. They're going to lift him up to crucify him. They're going to lift him up to shame him. They're going to lift him up to rob him of glory. And yet, in so doing, he will be glorified. And so the reader picks up on the irony of this phrase, being lifted up. But also notice the culpability. When you have lifted me up. And these Jews in Jerusalem, these very religious people, 
in chapter 19 and will cry out for his blood. They'll force Pilate's hand. John 19, 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. They will crucify him. So notice their culpability and the irony. So let's continue on. On the cross, Jesus' identity will most will be most clearly proven. On the cross, Jesus' identity will be most clearly proven. Now we can we can be compelled by the Jesus' wisdom, by Jesus' compassion, by Jesus' boldness, his fearlessness, the way he fights the false shepherds of Israel, the way he's filled with zeal for his father's house. But again, consistently, it's Jesus revealing his submission, his obedience, his humility on the cross that most reveals his glory, most compels us to faith. And that's what he's saying here. When you've lifted me up, then you will know. So on the cross, Jesus' identity will be most clearly proven. And just, just remember the centurion in um, where is it? Matthew twenty-seven fifty-four. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they lifted. They were filled with awe and said, "Truly, this was the Son of God." There's at least one example of someone when Jesus is lifted up, coming to faith, coming to believe. Truly, this is the Son of God. So let's just look at this over five points. First. Jesus' identity on the cross will be proven first that he is king. He is king. The title, Son of Man, is a reference to a prophecy in the book of Daniel. And the emphasis there is on someone so great that Yahweh gives him an everlasting kingdom. Let me read it to you. Daniel seven thirteen to 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus takes this title when you've lifted up the Son of Man. And I I think if you were to grab one central portion of that. This, is, this son of man is a king with an eternal kingdom without scope or end. And again, ironically, God's sovereignly determined that over his head, meant to mock him, meant to mock the Jews. Pilate put it there and they wanted them to take it down, king of the Jews. No, write, write and say, he said he was king of the Jews and Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. Pilate did it to insult the Jews It's meant to mock Jesus, and yet it is true advertising. He is the king of the Jews, and on the cross we see that, that he is king. Second, that he is God, that he is God. Then you will know that I am he. Now turn back to Isaiah 43. At the burning bush, God reveals his covenant name to Moses, tells him that I am sent you. I am who I am, and tied up in the godhood of God is his self-existence. You and I are derivative beings. There was a time when we were not. 
and we exist not by our own power, but by the spoken word of another. You and I are contingent beings. We exist because he exists. We are because he spoke and it came to be. We are derivative and contingent. God is self-existent of himself, non-contingent, not needing anything outside of himself, not connected or caused by anything. And that's what's tied up in the name I am. Well, that I am-ness then gets developed in Isaiah 43, in the chapters 40 to 50, really, or 55. We'll look at a couple examples. This is what I think Jesus is getting at when he says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Look, look at verse 10. You are my witness, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you were my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? And then again in verse 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my name's sake. I will remember, I will not remember your sins. And so when Jesus says, unless you believe that I am he, this development of the burning bush name that God is, I am, is why I believe what he has in mind. That certainly is where he ends up at the end of the chapter. Verse 58 of chapter eight, before Abraham was, I am. So, on the cross, then, he'll be revealed to be God. He'll be revealed to be God. That's the conclusion the centurion came to. Jesus is saying, in, that, in other words, you want proof of who I'm claiming to be? You will see, you will know when I am crucified. He is God. This is the confession Israel will make someday in the future, according to Zechariah 12.10. In Zechariah 12.10, we read about a future um, day of, of danger for Jerusalem. The nations of the world gather around it. We've, we've seen some stuff on the news this weekend, but there will come a, a day in the future where it'll look like Jerusalem's going down, where her, army, her enemies gather around her. And then the Lord God writes, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. It's an amazing passage. Someday in the future, God will pour out his spirit. This is not something they come to by their own wisdom, their own intelligence. His spirit is the initiator. And they look upon, and notice this, they look upon me, so they're looking on the Lord God, but also on him, someone distinct from whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him. I think this is the fulfillment of what Jesus says. When I'm lifted up, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And someday yet future, God will pour out his spirit, and nationally Israel will say, what have we done? Because they will see his godhood, his kingship most clearly in his crucifixion. Point three, 
He is the Son. He is the Son. Now, the fundamental reason why they want to kill Jesus when they understand he's claiming to be God is they understand this is idolatry, is blasphemy. You're putting yourself up as someone opposed to God. And if you read the Old Testament, you can't help but conclude God is a jealous God. He says that. He will not put up with competitors. He smashes the idols of the nations. They're worthless. He despises them. And so their conclusion is anyone who would make himself out to be God's equal must be competing with God, must be incurring God's ire. God must hate him. And so Jesus insists, no, no, no. When you've crucified me, you will understand. I'm not in competition with God. I'm not in conflict with the Father. I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Because on the cross, the sun will turn to darkness. On the cross, the ground will shake. On the cross, the union of the Son and the Father will be seen as the Father works signs on the earth in concert with the judgment of His Son. He is the Son. I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Everything Jesus is doing. So any notion that Jesus is in conflict with the Father will be removed when Jesus is crucified as the cosmic signs are poured out, as the Father bears witness to and vindicates and validates his Son. And that vindication and and validation is most clearly seen in the resurrection when Jesus is raised from the dead. Next point, Jesus says he is not alone. He is not alone. And again, there's another deep irony here. Even as Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even as he is lifted up from the earth, separated from heaven and earth in between, even as his disciples abandon him like sheep when the shepherd is struck, he is not alone. John 16, 32, the night before he's crucified, Jesus says this. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for the Father is with me. And even as Jesus is pierced and hanging from the cross, as the sun turns to darkness, as Matthew reports, some of the dead rise from the grave, the Father's union with and fellowship with, the Father's being with the Son will be seen. No, Jesus is not a competitor for the title of God. He is not in conflict with the Father. He is in perfect concert and harmony with the Father. And point five, that he is obedient. That he is obedient. Rather than seeing Jesus' claims to deity as hubris and insubordination and rebellion and treason, because that is who he is. He's actually being obedient. In the cross, his submission and his obedience will be seen perfectly. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He who sent me is with me, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. No, Jesus' mission is not insurrection against God. It is the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. He is obedient. Philippians chapter 2, we get an early Christian hymn. 
summarizing this, bringing together how the cross is both the ignominy and the shame, but also the crowning glory of Christ. Philippians 2, 5 to 11, Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is obedient. He is supremely obedient. He lays down his life for the sheep because that is the work his father gave him to do. And on the cross, that claim is vindicated. So let me, let me tie this then together. Jesus has said, we saw this last week, it is essential for every one of us to become convinced, to believe Jesus isn't just a good man, but he is God in the flesh. But that Godhood is seen in the dying God, the suffering God who lays down his life for his people. And so we speak of salvation is by coming to believe, putting your faith in the person and work of Jesus. That's what I mean when I say person and work. He is God. He is God crucified for man. The gospel in its simplest form, Jesus Christ is the son of God. He took on flesh. He lived a sinless life. And on the cross, he voluntarily stands in our place. He takes the punishment of our sin Rather than you and I dying in our sins, he dies in our sins on the cross. Someone will die in your sins. There's no escaping that reality. Someone will die in and for your sins. And Jesus says he'll be lifted up as the son of man. And he will die in our place. And by coming to faith, that he is God, the Son of God. He is the one lifted up for our sins. We can escape dying in our sins. Those are the only two options. Unless you believe that he is God, God crucified, you will die in your sins. And that is what he makes plain here. The cross reveals his sovereign godhood, his sonship, his obedience, his union with the Father. And we see in this statement some sort of positive response from the Jews in Jerusalem. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Now we'll see what happens to that faith. By and large, it's going to die a few verses later. But Jesus, as he speaks more and more plainly, as people are able to understand, we can respond in faith. So my prayer is that we would respond in faith and that unlike the faith of these people, if you just read a few verses later, our faith would persevere Look in John 8, we'll look at this next week, but they respond in faith. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. What does Jesus say to that little beginning faith? So Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. True true belief grows and perseveres. And so if, if you even this morning have just begun to come to faith that Jesus is who he says he is, continue in his word, continue in his teaching, continue in faith, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I'm going to call the worship team up. We'll sing our closing song this morning. Lord God, we thank you. We, we, we rejoice that you have sent your son. You did not leave him alone. You stayed with him. 
And he was faithful, always doing the things that please you. And he didn't seek his own glory, but he sought your glory. He laid down his rights. He became obedient. He humbled himself, even to the point of death on the cross. And that was his crowning glory. And because of that, you've given him the name that is above every name. That in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven or on earth or under the earth. And every tongue confess. Lord, we would have our tongues confess that now. As praise, as adoration. But every tongue will confess, every demon, every one of the damned will confess that Jesus is Christ. Let us do it now as an act of worship and joy. In Jesus' name, amen.